When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, folks, to the bookcase. I think we're down, Kate, to the second shelf of the bookcase by now. We've sort of filled up the first part of the bookcase, haven't we? Well, yeah, but I think we've stopped well before footnotes. I don't think we're in footnotes yet. (laughs) I think we're in good shape there. Hi, I'm Kate. I'm I'm the co-host. Indeed, and we are delighted this week to be featuring James McBride. He has written some wonderful books. And some books, actually, you may not know as well, but he wrote The Color of Water many years ago, which was probably, I think, Kate's most biographical novel, mm-hmm. then wrote Deacon King Kong, which was just one of the best writing experiences of my life. And he has now got a new book out, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, yeah. which is just out and is a wonderful novel with, I think, very rich characters. Oh, yeah. And, you know, James McBride is one of those writers that when you see him in the new book section, you're like, oh, yeah, he's got a new one? You bet. Talk about a writer I will read simply because they wrote it. He also wrote The Good Lord Bird, which was the winner of the National Book Award, and a really wonderful book of short stories called Five Carat Soul. I mean, his talent knows no end. And one of the things I said to my co-host slash father when we were prepping this was that if I was a writer, I think James McBride would be the one writer I wouldn't be able to read. Why? He is Why? Because he's so good that sometimes when I'm done reading one of his sentences, his amazing sentences. To me, it's almost like a mic drop. Like I need a minute just to absorb the sentence. You make the point when we talk to him that some of his sentences can go on and on and on. We've counted some that are in the 150 word section and you were sort of curious about when he gets into one of those sentences, what happens. But what I think is, I I didn't realize until researching this conversation that he was quite, quite an accomplished musician, saxophonist, mm. and had played many gigs around around the country and was well considered in the music world. And I think there's a meter to his writing that I think is very much influenced, I suspect, by his music and his sense of rhythm. Mm, like a, a musicality almost yep. Yep. to the way that he writes. I find his writing so beautiful. And I find sometimes when I go on a tangent with a writer, I think to myself, okay, I'll indulge you a little while. And I get a couple of pages into it and I go, I've indulged you now. I never feel that way with his books at all. Like when he goes on a tangent, I have bought a ticket. I am on the ride. Whatever tangent he wants to take me on, I'll go. I don't care. What used to be an e-ticket at Disney World. Exactly. When he takes you off on a tangent, it's it's, it's really quite wonderful. This book is about a neighborhood which actually used to exist in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and it's Chicken Hill. And on the Chicken Hill, as he writes about it, and I think the novel is set in the early in the early 70s, on Chicken Hill, there is a black enclave, an African-American conclave, and a Jewish conclave, groups existing side by side, and how they cooperate. And the meaning of that cooperation, I think, is a really important part of the book. You ask him if he's an optimist or not. He's a realist, I think, as an African-American author. He writes about the problems of race in this country, 
but he's also, I think, an optimist. And he says to you, I think he's an optimist, right? I think, yes, I think he's an optimist. I think he is, dare I say, a courageous optimist. He himself is half Jewish. This novel is it's an examination of the sometimes fraught relationships between the Jewish community and the African-American community. And it also, I think, is a real scathing look at the way we treated mental health in this country for years and years and years and years. And despite the fact that there are those very deep, very tough subjects that he's talking about, there is so much joy and humor and beauty in this book. I just... I'm. I'm a fan. <laughs> I think you've. I think you've made that clear, and and I am too. Uh, without quite the exuberance that you expressed, but you're talking about sentences. I know you you picked out one which is actually from Deacon King Kong. I think that you thought was particularly illustrative of his wonderful sentence structure and his ability to go on in a sentence and make it very real. Yeah. And I don't know that I'll do his words justice, but I will do my best. Uh, this is from Deacon King Kong. It says, "And there they stayed." a sole phenomenon in the Republic of Brooklyn, where cats hollowed like people, dogs ate their own feces, aunties chain-smoked and died at age 102. A kid named Spike Lee saw God. The ghosts of the departed Dodgers soaked up all possibility of new hope, and penniless desperation ruled the lives of the suckers too black or too poor to leave. While in Manhattan the buses ran on time, the lights never went out, the death of a single white child in a traffic accident was a page one story, while phony versions of black and Latina life ruled the Broadway roost, making white writers rich, West Side Story, Porgy and Bess, Pearly, Victorious, and on it went the whole business of the white man's reality lumping together like a giant lopsided snowball, the great American myth, the big apple, the big kahuna, the city that never sleeps, while the blacks and Latinos who cleaned the apartments and dragged out the trash and made the music and filled the jails with sorrow, sleep, the sleep of the invisible, and functioned as local color. Period. Period. I mean, no, no. I mean, you know, the period, I think, was sort of an afterthought. But that sentence kind of leaves you gutted. It's satirical. It's cynical. It's hopeful. It's beautiful. It's, I don't know. It's, it's everything. I, I agree with you. Here's our conversation with James McBride. James McBride, it is a real treat to have you in the bookcase because Kate and I are both fans. I think Kate has exhausted your entire bibliography. <laughs> but I've seen you quoted as saying, fiction allows your dreams to come true. How is that reflected in the Heaven and Earth grocery store? In my case, my uh, grandmother, she and her family and her husband ran a store in Suffolk, Virginia, where my mother grew up. They were the only Jewish store in a black section of town, and she had a very difficult life. So I tried to create a world in which she wasn't loved in real life, so I, I wanted her to be loved, so I, I made her loved on the page. Your grandfather sounded like a pretty despotic character and not very kind to his wife, your grandmother. So do you feel that you have, at least literature-wise, transported her life? Well, I like to think of it that way. Uh, you know, you can't change the past. You can only illuminate the past for the future. And in her case, her kindness and goodness and love for her children it's been passed down to her grandchildren. And so, yeah, I suppose so. There was a Chicken Hill. So I'm interested as to what that location gave you. Did you sort of shop for a location or did you always know that Heaven and Earth was going to take place on Chicken Hill? No, no, I, I was actually, that that was an accident. I, I was at the, when I, I originally set this book in Pottsville, but mm -hmm. Pottsville, PA is too far from where I live. And I was going out to take a look at Penhurst, which is a, 
institution that used to be in Spring City. And I saw the sign that said Pottstown. So I said, well, Pottstown's okay. And I rode into Pottstown. I went to the Historical Society in the library. I did all the journalistic things you normally do when you're researching a historical novel. And I, someone mentioned Chicken Hill. So I just did some work and started investigating the, the Chicken Hill section of town. And with a little Googling, I've learned that, that indeed there was a Chicken Hill years ago with a polyglot of residents from many different backgrounds. And I, th that's obviously very apt because I thought this book to be about community and the importance of cooperation within communities. I thought that the case in Deacon King Kong and, and now in Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, is, is that what you're after to illuminate that importance of community and of cooperation? Well, absolutely. I mean, we live in a nation of communities and the world is composed of communities and communities where, I mean, from a novelist's point of view, community is where things can happen where you can get people to move from one room to the next. And like Winesburg, Ohio uh, by uh, Sherwood, Anderson. Uh, Sherwood Anderson is a place where he has room to expand on character and show the backstory of people in ways that are that show what motivates them and shows how they're in pain, how they find joy. I mean, joy is just an ice cream sandwich if you're in the right town and the right people love you. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes is Lewis Thomas, the great biologist, who said, society evolves not by shouting each other down, but by the unique capacity of individual human beings to comprehend each other. And that does seem to be an underlying theme of your work. That, is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I grew up in that way. You know, I, I came up from a, was raised by a white Jewish mother who raised 12 black children in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And Tolerance wasn't a word used in our house. We were just, we just, we were just happy, and we learned happy people. We learned to be around happy people. And some of those people were in church, and some were in streets, and some were in the subway in New York. That, you know, it was. It's not hard to look for the happy people. The hating part is the part that really requires an engine. Happiness, you coast. Hmm. Not to get too philosophical, but would you say that means you're an optimist about the human condition? Well, I wouldn't say that. I'd say I'm very realistic. Look, letters and words have enormous power. Mm -hmm. And if they're used properly, they can bring you great success and happiness. And when they're used in the wrong way, they can bring you tremendous suffering. I'm optimistic in the sense that I like people. And people have been kind to me over the course of my life. I remember the kindnesses as well, better than the evil. Let me ask you about that. And I'm treading on very dangerous ground here because I am a white man of privilege. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I've read many books because I want to learn that are written by black authors who I think are trying to teach me about the black experience. And you are different, I think, in that you write to let me feel the Black experience. Is that what you want your readers to do? Feel and have empathy for your characters? And thus, you don't have to write about race per se. Absolutely. And the other thing is that I don't really feel an obligation to educate anybody about any race because I don't really think that race counts as much as most people think it does. I mean, I, you know, surely I have a little more sympathy for Jewish people than maybe your normal black guy walking up and down Broadway. But, you know, no group is more special to me than another because I suppose just because of the way I was raised and the city I was raised in and the parents who raised me. I think in general, blacks are a little more sophisticated about 
race and matters like that, because, you know, a lot of times our well-being depends on our sophistication and our ability to be sophisticated. I think the key really is to make sure that we all experience a little bit of each other's lives so we understand that if someone cuts you off in traffic, it doesn't matter what color they are. They shouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) You have this wonderful character in Heaven and Earth, Dodo, who's deaf. So the state considers him insane and they want to put him in an institution. And as I'm reading the book and and all about Pennhurst, I get to your acknowledgments and you write about Cy Friend and your experience with the camp that you worked at. I wondered if you would talk about that because it seems like that acknowledgement was really personal. And I wanted you to talk about how that inspired the book and how it became the novel that you wrote. Well, that was a seminal experience when I was 19. My mother moved from New York to Philly, and I ended up coming home to Philadelphia for summers. And I didn't know anyone. I applied for a job as a camp counselor. When I worked at Size Camp, it's called the Variety Club Camp in Philadelphia, outside Philadelphia. It was a life-altering experience. Really, the disabled, I mean, first of all, the camp staff was diverse long before the word diversity was part of our language. And also... Sai, I mean, we learn more from those kids than we could ever teach them. I tried to write a book about it for years, but I just couldn't. Every time I tried to write it, it came out like it's camp and the kids go to sleep and then they get up, and you know. <laughs> but I, I realized that what I was trying to write about was equality mm. and, and what disabled children have to teach us. And I was always curious about my own Jewish history, my mother and her mother, my grandmother. So it sort of fell together in that way. When I really, when I came upon the character of Moshe, who was the guy who, in the camp life and in real life, donated the land for the camp, that's when the book really began. You write, my view of the world is not merely that of a black man, but that of a black man with something of a Jewish soul. So you come to this writing about these two communities on Chicken Hill with a something of a unique viewpoint. But how do I apply that again to this book? My view of the world is not merely as a black man, but with something of a Jewish soul. Well, I mean, I wrote those words almost 30 years ago. And they're still pertinent to a point because I've evolved now. You know, I was always interested in how so many different Jewish people from different parts of Europe came here and managed to survive through Judaism. Yet, not knowing what to keep, not knowing what to leave behind, and the splintering off of Jewish life into different aspects of American life. But on the other hand, as I've grown older, as a Christian and as a person who was, you know, has something of a Jewish soul, I've become more and more distant from both religions in the sense that I realize it doesn't matter. It only matters when you use the good aspects of those religions. Otherwise, count me out. I've seen enough now at age 66 to realize that religion is dangerous. It can be a kind of baseball bat that is used to knock people about with God's help, you know, you know, his supposed help. And I said to myself, enough. In this case, in the Heaven Earth grocery store, I think many people, many Americans have no idea of the difficulties that Jewish people had when they first came to this country in the 20s and 30s. Absolutely no idea. So I thought it was important to mention that because I think people think anti-Semitism has vanished, (laughs) and it hasn't. Um, So, But you don't want to lecture people about these things. You just want to show them and show them some solutions. And uh, I believe in solutions. I want to ask you about what I think of, what I've characterized in my head as James McBride epic sentences. 
there are times where you go, there are sentences sometimes that, that have 200 words, but also 200 years of history in them. So I'm interested, I want to ask you a few questions about this. One, have you ever written one that's so long your editor's like, no, 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 we got to put some punctuation in here. Two, do you know you're about to launch into one of those sentences when you're writing it? Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I, <laughs> no, I, I, if I knew how long the sentences were going to be, I'd never start them. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd leave them alone. I mean, it's just that once I get into a character, I get into a flow, I kind of, it's just, they, it seems to connect. I remember hearing Kurt Vonnegut say, you know, I don't ever use semicolons. They're useless. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I try not to use semicolon. I just try to keep get going and hope the reader hangs on. You, you you've had a semicolonoscopy. That's right. <laughs> I wanted to ask you also: Do you mean to be funny? Because your books are very funny. So what I want to know is: Do you like? Do you have? Do you say I'm going to put in some humor here, or does the humor naturally come out of your writing? It's just natural. I mean, I I, I can't write anything that says, you know, take your medicine. Uh, you know, I just hate those kinds of books. I mean, the, the hardest, the hardest sections of this book to write for me personally, with with having heard Earth Grocery So were the parts about the institution, the three chapters of the institution. That was just, I just hated writing them. I just hated the. The only good part about that was visiting with those characters, especially Monkey Pants. But in general, I I'm a funny guy. I mean, I come from a funny family, so uh, it you know. Comedy works. <laughs> in the book, you frame the beginning and the end with a mystery. And when I started it, I thought, oh, this is going to be something of a whodunit. But then the mystery seems to fade away. Indeed, it disappears. And this book, this wonderful book, is about Chicken Hill and these two communities and their cooperation and wonderfully rich characters. And then at the very end, you come back to the mystery and you, you solve it, resolve it. How come? Did you feel you needed to do that to add that element of mystery beginning and end? Well, let's go back. Initially, this book was about the camp. Mm -hmm. and so I wrote chapter and chapter and chapter about the camp. And then when I pushed into how the camp was founded, I pushed into the character Moshi. Well, that was the only chapter that works. So I discarded all the other chapters and began the book with Moshi and his theater in, in the middle of town. When I worked to the back of the book, the murder that happens at the end was just, it just happened. And I, I had to figure out how to sort of bookend it or button it up properly so that the reader would be engaged enough to, to last for 300 pages. Hmm. And also I wanted to make a statement about Malachi the dancer because he was a Hasid, he was a dancer, he was a unique, wonderful character. And in my imagination, he just stuck around when it was all over, you know, and the, the, he just stuck around. He stayed in the temple to the very end. And so that's who they that's who we see at the beginning of the book. So you resolved a murder that you hadn't talked about. Right. So you went back and wrote the, the first few pages at the end. That's right. The end was was that actually written. The beginning was actually written after the book was completed. Yeah. Huh, really? I'll be darned. Yeah. Structures everything. Yeah. Structures. Yeah. Structure in novel writing is is. It's 50% of it and the other 50% of characters. Right. You mentioned that you hated writing the Penhurst chapters. And I'm sort of interested as a writer that I would find intimidating if I were a writer. How does a writer with as much experience and, dare I say, talent as you have, sit down to write something that you don't want to write? What is that process like? Well, I mean, 
you might want to ask your dad about that. I mean, he's going to probably... <laughs> 50, 100 stories that he doesn't want to do it. He just goes ahead and does it and holds his nose and gets it out the way. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 with Penhurst, you're, with that, you always think, how can I say this in a way that hasn't been said before that doesn't scare the reader and make them want to close the book? Mm. You don't want to depress people. You want to inspire people. You don't want to make them run out the room. You want to make them peek into the keyhole, see what's in the room. And so the person who takes us into the room is Monkey Pants. Mm -hmm. And he's a compelling character. He's a kid with cerebral palsy. He can't speak yet. Yet he has a thousand thoughts and we're waiting for him. I hope we're waiting for him to communicate to Dodo, his friend, his, this 12-year-old black kid who's deaf, you know, what he's thinking. And I saw that when I was at Variety Club Camp. I saw how these kids, you know, how they managed to communicate and so I figured that would be the way to show what's in mm -hmm. Penhurst without turning the reader off. Mm -hmm. You're always looking for a different door. Well, if everyone goes in the door on the left, how can we get in the door on the right? And if there's not a door on the right, is there a ladder in the back so we can climb in the window? We won't be there long. <laughs> Let's just get in there and get out. So that you're always thinking, you're always thinking that way. Isn't that the American way? I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you're always aiming for the brightest star. You're always aiming for the good. Not the phony good, you know, not the phony baloney good, you know, the don't tread on me nonsense, but you're looking for the real good. And the real good is usually in some citizen that nobody sees. The lady with the church hat in the eighth row, you know, the white guy with the baseball cap who just left, you know, the black kid who, you know, who just got a 95 in his physics class and he's waiting at the bus stop at 11 o'clock because he doesn't have coffee at home. That's, that's who you're waiting for. And as a novelist, you can wait for those people to come and you can show them to the people because they exist and they exist in your heart and your consciousness. And that's, that's the magic of being a writer. And that's what's wonderful about your books. I, I find great humanity in all of them and particularly why we love this one. Just one more question I want to ask you. We've tried to keep this podcast as apolitical as possible, as people in the political world are just screaming at each other these days to really to no account. But banning books is an exception to that. I think Kate and I agree, and so many people agree that it's pernicious. Your thoughts on that? Well, I just read a story about this last night, about something going on in Houston now, the shutting down school libraries and so forth. We are at war. This is no longer a war of words. This is a war of ideas. And this war of ideas does demand that we put our foot down and draw a line in the sand and say, no, you can't ban books. You can't ban ideas because this is a land of ideas. So as I said before, nobody who scoops ice cream with three fingers and shoves them in their mouth is going to tell me or can tell a librarian that they can't use a certain book. So we do have to draw a line in the sand. And whoever is trying to ban books, they need to be removed. They have to be tossed out and we've got we can't be democratic about it. Bye bye. Get rid of them. And get someone. We, we, we have to be strong in that regard. We have to be very forceful. I think the attacks on librarians is just despicable. Really. I mean, they are the last line of reason and discourse in this society. And we, they must be defended at all costs. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid-fire questions for James McBride. The most influential writer in your life? Probably Herman Melville. Hmm. Really? I mean, the last three chapters of Moby Dick are the most exciting, among the most exciting pieces of writing you'll ever find. Hmm. Yeah. You have a penchant in your books for giving characters nicknames. Do you have one? I have a couple. I used to be called Griddles in college, and, uh, and then Cuddy amongst jazz musicians in New York. Both names are just, when I was in college, I went to Europe with a band when I was 17 and they started calling me McBrittles. Why? I don't know. So a trumpet player just called me McBrittles and I, I thought it was cool. And then when I got to college, I just introduced myself as Brittles. Do you write, rewrite and rewrite or does it pretty much flow for you? Well, I researched, I mean, I, I started researching that book in 2008 and I wrote many, many chapters but when I actually got to the book that the readers are reading now, that's the book I wrote over the summer. But I actually was writing that book for years. I would just write and discard and write and discard or write and hold. My process is pretty simple. I just research until I can't, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> and then I write, you know. I generally know when I'm rewriting the life out of something. And also, having done it so long now, I'm, I'm better at it. I aim quicker. My, my aim is more dead on now than in previous years. Do you put down a book that you hate or do you finish it? No, no. I put down books that I hate. How long do you give it? If it's a novel, I give it three or four pages. That's it. Oh, yeah. that's quick. Ooh. Yeah, that's quick. Which actually goes to the point of, of why a writer really needs to engage a reader right away. Yeah, you don't have a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you're, you know, they're in the bookstore. They're opening the book. They're looking. You better, better make it happen. And then a question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we find it illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Calm, sleepful, <laughs> joyful, helpful, and kind. Mm. Well, thank you for that. I love that. James McBride, thank you so much. The new book, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, is amazing. We loved reading it. Thank you for being on the bookcase. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad you didn't show my picture because I'm uglied up anyway at 66. <laughs> I show him. 
James McBride, that was such a treat for me talking to him. <laughs> um, and what I take away from the conversation, what really stays with me is he seems very mellow about what he does. He seems very cool about what he does. And I don't know, I wanted to grab him and go, gosh, don't you know how smart you are? He approaches the craft in a very mellow, open-eyed way. And I loved how much of a realist he was considering how talented he is. Indeed. And I was also taken with his words about book banning mm. and about challenging books. We are at war. This is no longer a war of words, he says. This is a war of ideas. And I, I agree. As I said to him, we try to keep this apolitical. But on that subject, I, I, I think we're both in agreement that this is very dangerous, what's going on in this country. Anyway, James McBride, and we asked him in the course of our conversation what his favorite bookstore is. James lives in New Jersey, and he mentioned a book in Montclair, New Jersey. The name of the book is Wachung Booksellers, and the owner of the store is Margot Sage L. Margot Sage L. from Wachung Booksellers, it's so wonderful to have you here. James McBride says you're his favorite independent bookseller, and we are both in love with James McBride. So when I started exploring, the first question I have for you, Wachung Booksellers smack in the middle of Montclair? Right. It's in the Wachung Plaza shopping area. We're just off of Wachung Avenue. It was the name I bought the store in 96, and it was the name that was given to it. My daughter came on to join us, and she is now going and she will buy the store. And it's all her drive. You know, you need new blood, new vision to move forward. And so she really wants to expand the children's room, and we couldn't do it within the confines of our space. So we took a space four doors down, and I mean, it just opened up three weeks ago. So we're like still in the major throes of the expansion. And then we expanded in the adult section. We have this kind of cool reading room now, whereas before we were all on top of each other, and now we have a bigger space for events, which are hugely important to us. I worked on a show called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives for a number yes. of years. And, and and diner owners would always talk about how impossible it was to pass the, the business on yeah. to their to their kids yeah. because no, they, they never wanted it. Right. So <laughs> what was your strategy? How did you hook her? What did you do? Parents everywhere want to know. Go. I think it was COVID for her. I mean, she was an educator. She had two young children. They had moved back to town. She loved the bookstore and it seemed like a good fit. And we needed to move forward and she was ready to do it. So I was totally shocked. Your location is interesting. Yeah. Montclair is directly west of New York City, but it is yep. a suburb. It is not a place where there are occasional visitors. So I would suspect you depend on repeat customers, loyal yep. customers, people yep. who believe in the store. What brings them in? And do you get to know them do you have favorite customers when they yeah. come in? You think, oh, good. So-and-so is here. He's going to yeah. want. Well, we're, we're kind of like the cheers of bookstores. You know, people walk in. It's like, Lois, Todd, how are you? <laughs> and, and if I don't remember their names, we definitely remember their stories because that's what we do. We just share our stories as we're talking about books, talking about living in the community, we're extremely community-based. You are right. We are 12 miles west of New York City. We are very fortunate to have a whole slew of writers, publishers, and New York Times reporters 
uh, living in Montclair. And that <laughs> helped build a, I mean, it is a vibrant literary community. Who are some of your favorite local authors? Well, we have Alice Elliott Dark came out with her beautiful book, uh, Fellowship Point, last year, and it's now out in paperback. And she has been a supporter all the way through. Valerie Wilson Wesley, she has published in all genres, but now is publishing Cozy Mysteries. We just had her first in-person event three weeks ago. That was a thrill. And Lori Lico Albanese, and who just came out with Hester last year. Yeah. I mean, I, there are too many to be named. Katie always asks about the craziness of someone who would venture to open a bookstore, much yeah. less expand one. Yes. <laughs> but she always asks, and it's a great question, I, was the book or books that led you to want to do this? It started out in 92, 93. I started a mail order catalog for books. We have an interracial family and I had trouble finding books for my kids. And so I thought if I got, I had this huh. vision, this is, you know, back in the days before multiculturalism, diversity and all that. So I just picked books that I loved, that my kids loved, and featured them in a catalog and sent them out. And we got a lot of local support. So that helped me buy the bookstore when it came up for sale. And to bring it back around to James McBride, he was our very first author. Because when The Color of Water came out, it just blew me away. Like he, you know, this was an amazing story, an amazing writer. And then I found out at that point, he was living in Nyack. I don't even... How did I find his address? I don't know. But we wrote to him and invited him and he came and like we just had family sitting on the floor, like listening to every word. It, it was his book was passed around from house to house like before he came. It was amazing. So that's why I'm, I'm especially thrilled that he introduced us to you. Is there a book in your library that is especially, especially dear to you that you would never let anybody else have? Wow, that is a really hard question. You were going to ask me like what I'm reading now, but wow, that's really hard because I do have a lot of collections. There are authors that I have followed. My first copy of Color of Water, I actually gave to someone and never got it back. Yes. Ooh. Yes. So I have learned my lesson uh, not to give away. I mean, I loved it so much. I wanted to share it with someone and that was... My big mistake. The books you love, you have to keep dear and hold on to. <laughs> if I have a dear book, I'm willing to lend it out. But listen, public, I do interview you first. <laughs> I do say, when will this be returned to me? In what condition will it be returned to me? How do you mark your place in the book? I need to know all these Ooh, things. You are very thorough. I didn't even think of that. Yes. And Kate says, if you're going to borrow a book from me, you have to have lunch or a cup of coffee with me to talk about it. That's great. What were you really excited about this summer? What did you read this summer that you really loved? I actually am still hanging on to Lessons in Chemistry, even though it's been over a year now. When it came out, that was like one of those discovery books that you're thrilled about, a voice you never heard of, this powerful yet totally awkward woman who navigates life challenges. I, I love that. I was a great champion for that, you know, when it first came out. Mm -hmm. One of the things I want to explore in coming weeks with some of the independent booksellers we talk to is how they decide what they want to stock and yeah. how they order. And I was very struck on your website. When you recommend books, you tell me how many copies yeah. you still have in the store. 
So you pick them either by the author, sometimes by the subject. I'm a cover person. I love to pick books by their cover. But then often I have a particular customer in mind. I might just pick this one book and say, well, this is, I know the person who is going to read this book and I will bring it in. We rely a lot on our reps, the publisher's reps. And if they start getting a buzz, they say to us, look, at really look at this, you know, bring in more than one copy, bring in, a, make a little stack. This is going to be worth it. And then one of us on our staff tries to read it. So as long as somebody has read it, has an idea of where it brings you, then you can sell it. I don't know what to congratulate you on first, <laughs> getting your daughter to buy the store, uh, your expansion, the fact that you did amazingly well during COVID. Margaret Sage, oh, I, congratulations on all of the great stuff that's happening at your store. <laughs> yeah, it's it's there's we have an incredible crew of people here. And as I said, an amazing town. So it is all work. We were really excited to talk to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. This was a real pleasure. And I love what you guys are doing. I love your your conversations with each other and and uh, I'm the authors you invite. It's a great program. Thank you very much. Watchung Booksellers, you can find it on Fairfield Street in Watchung. And I'm delighted that they're able to expand and that she has been able to make a success of the store, um, even through the tough times of COVID. Well, we have a little connection to Northern Jersey. That's where I grew up many, many, many a year. So I, any business that makes it in Northern Jersey, I, I do a little fist cheer for because <laughs> uh, because that's my hood. I love talking to her. And I find, it's funny, I find talking to booksellers almost as addicting as talking to authors. Uh, you guys don't know this, even though you only hear about five, 10 minutes of the conversation. Sometimes those conversations last 45 minutes, an hour. We just exchange ideas we're like, have you read this? Have you read this? Have you read this? And then all of a sudden we're like, wow, we should let you go sell books. So that was really fun. (laughs) So thank you. We'll remind you of the people who make this podcast possible. We are thankful both to ABC Audio and to Good Morning America, who is very much behind this podcast. So we'll remind you of those folks. And then we asked James McBride to end with a coda and he had a poem to read which is somewhat lengthy, but stick with it. It's a delightful poem, and I hope you uh, can enjoy the meter in the poem that he likes, as well as his own books. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker, about to be a new mom, is our supervising producer, and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. This is a short poem by Will Allen Drumgoole. Goes like this, an old man going alone highway came at evening cold and gray to a chasm vast, deep and wide, through which was flowing the sullen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim, the sullen stream had no fear for him, but he turned when safe on the other side and built the bridge to span the tide. Old friends said a fellow pilgrim near, you are wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the passing day and you will never again pass this way. You crossed the chasm vast, deep and wide, why build this bridge at evening tide? The builder lifted his old gray head to good friend, he said, in the path I have come, it follows after me today, Ruth, whose feet must pass this way. This chasm that has been as naught to me, to that fair head, Ruth, may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. As in previous campaigns, it's 
the economy stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news stupid. It is the economy stupid. It's not the economy stupid. It's national security stupid. It's the hair stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.